I want to say good morning to you again. I want to say good morning. morning. That was my fault. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Um, You're going to need your Bibles this morning. So if you don't have your Bible with you this morning, but you would like a Bible, just simply lift your hand up, and one of our ushers will put one in your hand. Um, If you don't own a Bible, that Bible is yours to take with you, our gift to you. If you do not have a Bible, please, please take ours. I want everyone to have the Word of God. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15 is where we're going to be today. Um, But as you're turning there, we've been walking for the last few weeks on this new series called Growing Pains. We've seen the power of God and the Spirit of God work and do miraculous and mighty things, from the gathering of people to creating one new people from two, from the the radical generosity and devotion that we saw in the disciples to the fire coming down at Pentecost to the spread of the gospel across language barriers and physical and geographical barriers. We have seen the power of God, the Word of God, and the people of God go forth. In the last few chapters, starting in Acts chapter 14, we begin to see that there are some problems, um, that there is an opposition Amen. We have an enemy if you are a Christian. And so in this life, we will have troubles, the Bible says, but we will never not have God. And so we begin to see as the gospel is going forward, as Paul and others are planting churches, that there begins to be this opposition. And Paul becomes kind of the main character. It was Peter in verses chapters 1 through 13, but Peter kind of stays in Jerusalem. And Paul and Barnabas and now Paul and Silas are kind of the prolific church planters. They're going through all throughout the known world, planting churches, and we listed several of those places over the last few weeks. But those things came at great cost to Paul. We've seen already him being whipped and beaten and stoned and jailed and imprisoned. He will be shipwrecked and lost at sea and starved, all for the sake of the gospel. And I can just imagine the words that are ringing in Paul and the rest of the disciples' ears are what we commonly understood now as the great commission of, chapter, of Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 and 19. It says, Jesus said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples in all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And so that became the rallying cry and the sending catalyst that we've got to take this thing everywhere. And so Paul, in humble obedience, goes. But it wasn't just threats from outside. It wasn't just being stoned and shipwrecked. It wasn't just those things. We began to even see a few weeks ago there was some internal conflict. There were these two groups called Jews and Gentiles, which basically mean Jews and non-Jews. And the Jews had always been the people of God. They had the, the word of God and the law of God, and the, the, the Messiah is going to come through the Jewish lineage. And so they were seen as God's people. But then Jesus began to preach this message that crossed cultural and ethnic barriers and said, no, Gentiles are my people too. And so through the church in kind of a disarray is what do we do with all these people coming in who are not like us? Sure, we don't struggle with that issue today. But the church began to struggle with identity, separating culture from the gospel, separating how we have always done things to how God has called us to do it in light of who's here now. And so in Acts chapter 15, we begin to see this internal debate, this internal struggle. But what do we do with the Old Testament? All these rules and all these laws and all these things that we have thought made us right with God, all these things that we faithfully lived by all these years. Now Jesus says, no, don't obey those things for righteousness, but trust your trust in me. Now circumcision externally wasn't the sign of the covenant, but it was trust in Jesus. And so the church began to wrestle with what does that mean for us? The faithful Jews, what does that mean for us? And so they settled on Christ alone 
by faith alone, through grace alone. It became the rallying cry of even the Protestant Reformation of returning back to the essentials of what, make, what, means, what does it mean to be a believer. And so right now we are picking up from that story right where it left off. Paul had just delivered that letter to several other people. And now we're going to see a different type of struggle today. Up to this point, the, the biggest accusation against Paul and his followers were lies. They were stirring up the crowd, accusing them of things that they didn't do, saying that they said things that they didn't say. Up to this point, Paul had gotten in trouble because people were lying on him. Same thing that happened to Jesus, not unfamiliar. But today is going to be a little bit different as we look at the passage because here, those who were trying to go against the message of the gospel, the going against the message of the good news of Jesus Christ, they're not going to tell a lie. They're actually going to tell the truth. And honestly, believer, the truth about Christianity is way more scandalous than any lie. We have a ridiculous faith. We realize this, right? The Bible calls it foolishness to those who are perishing. And so the Jews begin to figure this out, that if we just told the truth about what they're saying, that would actually be more scandalous. We could probably get them in more trouble. That's what we're going to talk about today is what we do with the truth of the gospel is more scandalous than the lies. If you were to Google the scandal of the gospel or the scandal of Jesus Christ, there were some Old Testament kind of people saying that Jesus was married and Jesus did other things. But there's this reoccurring theme about how the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that we believe is really scandalous. Let me give you a definition for scandal. It'll be on the screen. Something is scandalous is it's an action or event regarded as morally or legally wrong and causing general public outrage. That's what a scandal is. Something that is considered morally or legally wrong that causes a public outrage. This is the faith that we believe in. In different times, in different cultures, in different climates, the truth that we hold on to is reprehensible to the morals of our generation, and sometimes even to the laws which our persecuted brothers around the world are being faced with every single day. But here we're going to see this public outrage at the preaching of the good news because it pierces deeper than we think. My goal today is that we would recognize and embrace the scandal of the good news of Jesus Christ, and that we would embrace this reality that to be a Christian is a little crazy but it's actually the safest and most joyous place to be is in Jesus Christ. Let's walk through the passage. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. Read silently as I read aloud. After they passed through Amphipolis, Ampollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there's a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Peter, I'm sorry, as usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I proclaim to you is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city, attacking Jason's house. They searched for them to bring them out to public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And Jason has welcomed them. 
They were all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying, there is another king, Jesus. The crowd and city officials who heard these things were upset. After taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they were released, verse 10. As soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters went to Paul and Silas away to Berea. Upon arrival, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. The people here were of more noble character than those of Thessalonica, since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of the prominent Greek women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica found out the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and upsetting the crowds. Then the brothers and sisters immediately sent Paul away to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed there. Those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens. After receiving instructions for Silas and Timothy to come to him as quickly as possible, they departed. That is the reading of God's word. In this passage, and if you've been paying attention in previous passage, we're going to see a very familiar formula or sequence of events. Every time Paul goes, there is a predictable sequence of events. You have proclamation, persecution, and then the promise. Proclamation, Paul goes usually to the synagogue first and preaches Jesus. And inevitably, there is persecution. People respond with hostility and anger just like they responded today. But then always you see the promise of God being fulfilled. We'll talk about that promise before we end our time today. But let's start with the proclamation, the first few verses of Acts chapter 17. Verses 1 through 4, we see Paul doing what he always does. He goes to the Jewish synagogue, begins to dialogue, that word means. So don't we hear that that reasoning with them? That's not just preaching. That's kind of a sit-down conversation. So Paul is sitting there with the scriptures open saying, let's talk, not just throwing pamphlets at people or doing open air preaching. There is a place for that. But here Paul is engaging with people with the scriptures, and he reasons with them. Now listen to Paul's message, verses 2 and 3. It says, as usual, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, so over several weeks, three weeks, Paul reasoned with them from scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Paul was preaching a suffering Savior. Now, if you listen to most modern-day sermons, that doesn't consume the bulk of our liturgy, does it? That doesn't consume the bulk of how we would explain the gospel. But he is spending most of his time convincing people that Jesus is the Messiah, and he is the Messiah because he had to die. He had to suffer the things that he suffered. Why is Paul making a big deal out of that? This is why. The Jews were expecting a Messiah for thousands of years, 400 years of silence after the prophet Malachi. Then Jesus comes on the scene, and during that time, they begin to form opinions opinions about what that Messiah is going to be like. They begin to look at all these old passages, Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 9 and Micah 5 too. And they begin to look at all these Old Testament passages and they begin to form for themselves who they think this God is going to be. What's he going to look like? Where's he going to come from? What is he going to do for us? And so by the time Jesus steps on the scene, there is a common understanding that Jesus is going to come back and free them from Roman rule and oppression and set up this new kingdom that the physical Israel Jerusalem is going to be restored. Our Messiah is going to be a political king who recreates our physical nation, who frees us from these Romans. 
Even the disciples who followed Jesus believed that. Matter of fact, they believed it so strongly, that was the burning question on their minds. Let me paint you a picture. The man that you've been following every day for three years, been saying cryptic things, some of it you get, some of it you don't, one day he gets arrested. Now, you believe this man to be the promised Messiah. You believe this man is actually going to free you. You believe that he's going to do all the things you think he's going to do. The next time you see him, he's gasping for air, hanging on a cross, dying. And so it went from feeding the 5,000 men and women to just 120 people praying in the upper room in Acts chapter 2. Where did the rest of those people go who were following Jesus? You see, Acts chapter 1, 6, even the disciples, after Jesus had been raised from the dead, had spent over a month teaching them and breaking bread with them and spending time with them, the one question on their mind is asked in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. It says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord... Are you restoring, uh, restoring the kingdom of Israel at this time? Hey, Jesus, I, I'm glad that you came back to life. I'm glad that you rose from the dead, but me and the guys were talking. Are we doing this Israel thing or not? Because that's why we're here, right? That's why you're here. You came to, to free us from Rome, right? You see, even after the resurrection, the disciples didn't get it. That's why it went from thousands following Jesus to 120 men and women upstairs praying because their expectation of Jesus was such that the Jesus that, that was sent, the Jesus that really came, was disappointing to them. They were disappointed. What? You, you got captured? You got, you got killed? You're not, you're not going to overthrow Rome and Caesar and Herod? Well, that's not the Messiah that I'm looking for. And they turned and walked away. I'm going to pause here for a second because this is, this is important. This is why understanding who God really is is so important, church. Because you can fall in love with the God of your imagination and not even realize it. You can serve on Sunday the God of your imagination and not even realize it. You can be reading your scriptures and being faithful as much as you know how, but in your mind you have a picture of God who is not God, but he's the God that's more palatable to your sensibilities. A God that meets all of your needs, that fits comfortably in your life, that doesn't ask too much, but always gives when you ask. I think of those who I've known even growing up around church. And we talk about those people kind of falling away, right? They used to be in church all the time. They used to be serving. They used to be singing. They used to be doing all these things. And then one day they fell away. Having conversations with several of those people, dozens of those folks over my short lifetime, I see a reoccurring theme in those who, you, oh, I used to go to church, the, that folk. The reoccurring theme is at some point and at some time, Jesus disappointed them. Maybe they prayed a prayer that didn't get answered. Maybe they wanted something that God didn't provide. Maybe God asked them to do something that seemed too hard or too much. And the, when the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when the God of the Bible confronted them, they realized that that's not the God that they wanted to follow. That's not the God that they had really committed their life to, and so they fall away. That's why understanding and reading and knowing the scriptures for yourself is so important. We don't want to be in love with our imagination. We want to be in love with the true and living God. And so the Jews, they were in love with the, the Messiah that they pictured in their minds, not the Jesus that was standing in front of them. May we not be as such. 
So they fell away. Paul preaching this crucified Christ, a suffering Messiah. He's basically making the point that, no, the Messiah really is Jesus. The Messiah really had to suffer. What you're looking for is not based in the scriptures. And so Paul begins to reason with them, showing them the true and risen Christ. And look what happens in that in chapter 4, verse 17, or chapter 17, verse 4. And it says, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of leading women. A couple of times in this passage, you're going to hear Luke call out women. And if you've been trekking with us for a while, you know that this is something that Luke does all the time. Whenever he gets a chance, he's trying to include women in God's plan, include stories of Lydia and others. Luke goes out of his way to show that it's not just Jew and Gentile, but it's male and female. We both have equal access to God. And that by itself was shocking in those days and times. But is that the scandal? Is the scandal the male-female divide, which would have been a pretty big deal? Is the scandal this, this suffering Messiah, even though we believe he was going to be this conquering king? He really came as a suffering servant? Maybe that's part of the scandal. But look how the Jews respond, because here it is going to become clear. So we have proclamation, and then we have persecution starting at verse 5. It says that the Jews formed a mob. Anybody have a King James Bible? No, it was cool? That's all right. So the King James literally says, lewd fe- there you go, mama, there you go, lewd fellows of the baser sort. That's an insult for the ages, y'all. The King James calls this mob lewd fellows from a baser sort. This is true. You can look this up. I didn't make this up. This is really in the King James Bible. So they, basically the Jews go out and find you know, these, rough, these hooligans and start to mob. You know those people who are just always looking for trouble? Like, hey, man, we're about to fight. Cool. They don't even ask what for. They don't ask who, where we're going. They just down. So the Jews go out and find those folks stirs up a commotion and begins this riot, and they proceed to Jason's house. And Jason's basically kind of like a Lydia in Philippi. There's Jason was kind of the guy who was hosting a lot of the disciples and the apostles at the time. They take this mob to Jason's house looking for them, mob justice. And here we find the scandal. Listen to the accusation that the Jews made. Once again, up to this point, the Jews would lie on Jesus, would lie on Paul, would lie on Barnabas. But here, they're going to tell the truth, and that's going to create an equal, if not greater, disturbance. Verse 6 is in 7. Open your Bibles. Look there. After they got this mob, when they did not find him, they found somebody. They dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting. Listen to the accusation, the scandal. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And Jason has welcomed them. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Here, church, is the scandal of the good news of Jesus Christ, the scandal of the gospel. You see, maybe they heard about Lydia, the rich woman who heard this preached message, who got saved and went from being wealthy to being generous, who funded most of Paul's missionary efforts who would lead the Philippian church in being generous time and again. Maybe they had heard about their trips around the nation, how they were changing things. These Jews are basically saying, we have got to stop these men here because if they're allowed to preach the good news of Jesus, the status quo is going to be disrupted. Things will change if we let these people keep 
preaching Jesus. You know what, church? They're right. They're absolutely right. The Jews meant this as an insult to incite fear, but they spoke a profound truth. At Radiant Church, we don't preach a Jesus that's going to fit nicely and neatly into your life. You don't come to Jesus to have some kind of moral accessory to your otherwise put-together life. If you accept Jesus, your world will turn upside down. Or maybe a better perspective would be right side up. Pastor Jay. Inside joke, don't worry about it. But that's the reality is the Jews got it. And I think sometimes we don't even get it. We think that we can take Jesus in pieces and portions and we can allow, we can just let ourselves inch towards who he is. That is not the call of faith. Sanctification is a progressive work, and I get that, but we got to go all in from jump. We got to be willing to say, oh God, here's my life, here's everything. My money, my kids, my marriage, my future, my retirement, my time, my recreation, my Netflix queue. I'm not joking. It's a real thing. All of it, Jesus, you can have. The Jews got that. They realized that, man, if we let these keep, see, the Jews had cultural power at the time. If you wanted to get to God, you had to go through them. Even the government, the Caesar would work with the Sanhedrin, this ruling body of the Jews, to pass reforms and legislation and keep the people in line. So the leading Jews had all of this cultural and religious and political power. And they knew that if they didn't have to go through them to get to God, if they could go through Jesus to get to God, they didn't need them religiously. And if Herod and Caesar aren't our king, but Jesus is our king, then we don't care about their political affiliations. So they knew that, man, everything is going to change if we let these people preach Jesus. And that's a word, y'all. That is a word. We are in this season kind of right before Christmas. Christmas is coming quickly. And for some of y'all, how quickly y'all put up decorations, Christmas is already here. Depending on your family. If you come to my house, Christmas is already upon us. But there's this reality that during this season, we're going to hear lots of songs and see lots of imageries of this baby Jesus in a manger, meek and mild. Like, we know that's not Jesus now, right? Like, baby Jesus isn't a thing. He came as a baby. He did. He was born as a man through a virgin. He really did incarnate with us. He loved us so much to not just stand back from us and bark orders, but he came to us to bring us back to God. That is a real and beautiful truth. Somebody should say amen. amen. But y'all, he came as a baby once. He's coming back as a king. We know this, right? He's coming back as the lion of the tribe of Judah with a flaming sword in his hand, riding a white horse to wreck shop. We know this, right? Jesus is already king now. The world just won't get to see it until the last day. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be upon his shoulders. Amen, right? It's a good song. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. Listen closely. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now and forever. The zeal of the Lord's armies will accomplish this. This is the God we serve. 
It doesn't sound like a man who gives suggestions, does it? He's not saying, hey, man, if you have time, it'd be really nice if you read your Bible. Hey, man, if you, if you could just, you know, carve out five, six minutes for me in the morning, I'd, I'd really appreciate it. That's how we think God approaches us. A king does not make suggestions. He speaks, and it is. He speaks, and it is. Where have we seen that before? The very creation of, of earth and heaven itself was the exact same formula. Jesus, it, y'all read Genesis 1 and 2. Like it, the power that God displays is, the Bible says that he was speaking to darkness and called forth light. How do you talk to something that doesn't exist and it responds? Like, that's, we realize this is crazy. It's like somebody who's not in service, and I say, hey, Bob, how you doing? And Bob instantly appears and says, I'm great, man, appreciate you. Like, that's what God is doing in creation. He's literally speaking to the mountains and say, hey, raise up. Okay, there's not mountains, we should create mountains, and okay, y'all guys, come up. He spoke to things that did not exist, and they obeyed him. This is the power of our God and King Why do you think he would interact with you any differently? He is king. And the sad part is sometimes our enemies realize this more than we do. The devil realizes, this is is almost a cliche at this point, but it's still true. The devil gets it, y'all. The devil gets it. That's why he's always fighting to distract you. That's why he's always bringing up your past. That's why he always brings stuff in the way, because he knows that if you get it like he gets it, he's done. He knows that if we get it like he knows it, North Charleston's going to be a different place. Your job is going to be a different place. Your school is going to be a different place. Your family is going to be a different place. If we get it like our enemies get it, that this thing is going to turn the world upside down. Do we believe that, y'all? Does Christianity something that we fit into our life, or does it define our very existence? This is the call. He is reigning now and will reign forevermore. And his reign just isn't in far off distant heaven. His reign isn't some metaphor or something that's not tangible. He is reigning right now over your life if you are a believer. Being a Christian isn't just saying, I don't want to go to hell. It's saying, no, I surrender to King Jesus. And I want his desires to be my desires. I want his priorities to be my priorities. I want his family to be my family. And that is the scandal of the good news, both then and now. See, the God of our age is self. The king that rules over our lives is stuff and comfort. Pursue your dreams. Choose your happiness. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Don't trust anyone. Don't let anyone get too close. This is the refrain and the rhythm and the song of this age. And the good news of Jesus Christ turns all of that upside down and says, true happiness is not found out there, but it's found in Jesus. True safety is not found through insulating yourself from the world, but it's about laying your life down for mission. And true community is not found by protecting yourself, but through transparency and confession and vulnerability. And that message is what caused Paul and Silas to have to run and hide for their lives. Because the world got it. 
The people in power got it, that if the Christians believe this thing and live this thing, the free ride is over. The gravy train has stopped. And they got it. We have the proclamation of Jesus, the suffering Messiah, who will reign again. We have the persecution, Paul and Silas having to leave in the middle of the night and to hide. But then we see the promise at work. Read with me verses 10 through 12. As soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea, hiding them under the cover of darkness. Under, upon arrival, they went into the synagogue of the Jews, just like he always does. The people here were of more noble character than those of Thessalonica, since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of the prominent Greek women first, as well as men, not insignificant. So what is the promise of God? What is this promise that we're going to kind of seek sequence over and over and over again? Let me be clear. There are many promises in Scripture, and some of them are good and true because they point to things that we can hold on to. Romans 38, nothing can separate us from God's love in Jesus. Psalms 121, that God will protect you and be a shelter for you. Isaiah 40, 31, that those who put their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. They will have the renewed strength. 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess, he is faithful to forgive us. John 3, 36, if you believe in Jesus, you will have eternal life. And if you don't, you will face God's wrath. Revelations 3, 5, if we endure to the end, our names will not be blotted out, but we were recorded and protected in the Lamb's book of life. These are great and glorious promises to hold on to. These are promises to memorize and write down and in those dark moments of the soul to cling to because God does promise good to those who follow him. But the promise that we're going to see throughout the book of Acts is not not an inward-looking promise. It's an outward-looking promise. Look again to what we started off reading, the Great Commission in Matthew. Actually, let's go to Matthew 16. It'll be on the screen. It says... And I also say to you, Jesus speaking, Peter, and on this rock, the rock that Jesus is the Messiah, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. You see, this promise is Jesus' declaration that I, Peter, am going to build this thing called the church. And no matter what hell throws against it, I'm a win. That's the promise that we see Paul and Silas spoke about this suffering Savior. They were run out of the city. They spoke again, and we're going to see that those people from Thessalonica heard that they were preaching in Berea and came down to them to stir up another mob and another issue. But look what happened both times. When they were in Thessalonica, verse 4, some of them were persuaded to join Paul and Silas. And then in Berea, verse 12, consequently, many of them believed, including a number of the prominent Greek women as well as men. You see that although the mobs came, they didn't prevail. The word was preached, Jesus was proclaimed, and God kept his promise that I'm going to build the church. Paul, you just, you just do what I'm telling you to do. Don't worry about being effective. Don't worry about changing your methods. Don't worry about that. I will draw people. That didn't stop the mission Paul's imprisonment, Paul's beatings, Paul and Silas being run off. And that's a promise that we can hold on to, too, church. 
We don't have to be eloquent when we share the gospel. We don't have to have all the answers. We don't have to downplay Jesus to make him more palatable to unbelievers. We can tell the whole scandalous truth that if you want Jesus, you're going to say no to everything else in this world, and it's better. I know you don't believe me. We can look people in the eye and tell them the whole truth. Because at the end of the day, y'all, this is a supernatural thing. No one here was convinced to become a Christian. Even though you may feel like there were some long conversations, I had lots of questions, what happened was supernatural. And God might have used the most ordinary of means, a, a faithful friend walking you through the Scriptures, a faithful family member or relative praying for you regularly, an event in your life that changed the way you viewed the world. God might have used a million things, but ultimately, if you are saved today, it's because the Holy Spirit did something that no one else, including you, could do. He changed your heart. I think about my own personal testimony. I was in church every day of the week for decades and said no to Jesus, and then one day I said yes. What was different? I didn't hear a different message. I didn't have this horror story. Nothing crazy happened. One day God intervened in my life and said, okay, I want you to hear today. I want you to hear truth today. I know you've heard it a million times, but now I'm at work, and I responded in faith. Y'all, Christianity is not a cause and effect religion. We live in a cause and effect world, and so it throws us off, but this is not a cause and effect religion. If I do this, God does that. If I share the gospel good enough, someone gets saved. If I read my Bible enough times on Sunday, God loves me. If I come to church enough times throughout the month, God forgives me for Saturday. That's not how this thing works, y'all. It starts and ends with the Holy Spirit doing what we cannot do for ourselves. Galatians 3, 2, 3, let me prove it to you in the scriptures. Paul again talking, he says, I only want to learn this from you. That's basically saying, I got one question. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by the Spirit, you are now finishing by the flesh? This is Paul saying, you got saved by the power of the Spirit. You're going to stay that way through the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't start working now. Jesus is the author and perfecter. We are saved by the power of the Spirit. We are sustained by the power of the Spirit. If you've been around on Sundays, you probably heard me pray a very similar prayer. I prayed almost every week. I said, God, we have planned and we have prepared. Now do only what you can do. That's real, y'all. We put a lot of work into Sunday morning. The worship team practices throughout the week. We've spent dozens of hours preparing sermons. Those people serving in the back in the kids' ministry, there's a ton of work that goes off every Sunday to pull this thing off. But if God doesn't move, all we're doing is having a social club meeting. If the Holy Spirit doesn't inform your Bible reading, you will leave your time reading the Bible more confused. If the Holy Spirit doesn't saturate your prayers, you're talking to the ceiling. We do not have a cause and effect religion. We have obedience, God's sovereign rule and reign, and we have fruit on the other end. And honestly, y'all, that's good news. If the, if the sound goes off, if the lights, if the power shuts off on a Sunday, if people don't show up in kids, it doesn't derail God's plan. God will still work. If I'm, if I'm bad one Sunday, I'm just off one Sunday, God will still use the word of God to accomplish the means of God. 
If you fumble through a gospel presentation trying to share Jesus and you get every question wrong, you don't know the answer to anything, God will still use your faithfulness because it's not up to us. This is a supernatural thing we are doing, and that is good news. We are called to share the gospel, but that by itself is not enough. We are called to pray and to study, but that by itself is not enough. Without the power of the Holy Spirit at work, we will always fall short, but that's why we call it the gospel, because Jesus never fails, even when I do. Through God's Spirit, our Sunday gatherings can bring life and hope and joy, no matter what happens. Our sharing the gospel, no matter how much we mess up, we can see those who are dead in their sins come to new life by just us being willing to be used. And with the Holy Spirit, our prayers do avail much, and the truth of scriptures are open to us in a supernatural way. This is the God that we serve, who is always active and moving in our lives. The promise is found in the Great Commission again. It'll be on the screen. It says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. The command right there in the middle is oftentimes what we focus on, and that's good. That's appropriate to see, to hear the commands of our King Jesus and want to respond. That's a good thing. But before that command and after that command, we are sandwiched with promises. Do you see it? All authority has been given to me. And it ends with, I am with you always. To the end of the age. Matt Chandler once said that if Jesus starts a sentence with all the authority has been given to me, it almost doesn't matter what comes next. All the authority has been given to me, jump off the roof and fly. Okay. Whatever comes after all the authority has been given to me doesn't matter because Jesus has all authority. And if he's giving a command, he's going to give us the, the power to obey and fulfill that command. So the ultimate promise that we're going to see time and time again through the book of Acts, time and time again through Paul and Silas's faithfulness to preach and to be and to suffer, is this promise that all authority has been given to me, and I'm with you always, Paul. I'm with you always, believer. I am here. Why should what could you be afraid of? What could you be worried about? What could make you anxious knowing that God is with you even to the end of the age? That's the promise that not only we hold on to, but that's the promise that we proclaim to others. Is you can have this God too. You don't got to work for it. You don't got to clean your life up. You don't got to get yourself together. All you got to do is say, I surrender. King Jesus. And then you do that every day for the rest of your life. You say, I surrender. King Jesus. We talked today about the scandal of the good news and how it disrupts our lives and turns it upside down, and it calls us to pledge our allegiance to a different and higher and better king. But for some of us, it's only a scandal because we don't know the whole story. As the worship team comes up, I'm going to share a quote. It's a paraphrase of a Francis Bacon quote, and it says, A little knowledge of science makes you an atheist. 
but an in-depth knowledge of science makes you believe in God. Scientists wrote this quote, and it's applicable to us because sometimes, some of us, we've got just enough of the Bible to be turned away. We've heard just enough about Jesus that we want to reject what we've heard because maybe all we've heard is the commands of Scripture, all the thou shalt nots. Maybe we've heard all the you're wrong and everything you do and everything you've ever done is bad, and that's all true. It's just not the whole story. And so if you've been introduced to the real Jesus, there's an invitation for you today to know him, to meet him, to love him, to follow him. And it's supernatural. I get it. But this room is filled with people who are on that side of grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit and now are walking with Jesus imperfectly. We stumble and fumble, but we're owned by Jesus, and that is good news. If you do not know him today, hear this. If you don't know Jesus, I'm not calling you to obedience. I'm not calling you to do better. I'm calling you to surrender to Jesus. That's the invitation for you today. Dear Christian, we've got some promises to hold on to. We've got some truths to hold on to. Our faith is a faith that turns the world upside down, our world and everything that we touch. We don't have to be ashamed of that. We don't have to be afraid of that. Matter of fact, only in embracing that do those promises of God become true. Because that's when we need him is when we have nothing else in this world. And that's right where God wants us to be. Let me pray for us. Father.